Bible out this morning, find the book of Philippians, chapter 2. There's some notes in your bulletin, if you'd like to follow along with the notes. We come to a passage that is too long to talk about in one Sunday. We're at Philippians 2, and the next passage that we need to tackle is verse 1 all the way to verse 11, and there's really no great way to separate that into two passages. We're going to do it this morning. We're going to try to do it this morning. And uh, we're actually going to split it at verse 4 and 5, right in between verse 4 and 5. And this morning, we're going to look at verse 5 to 11. And next week, we're going to look at verse 1 to 4. So we're going to take one passage. We're going to look at it over two weeks. But we're going to flip it. We're going to look at the last part first and the first part, second. And there's a good reason for that. When you read the passage, you can follow Paul's line of argument. He starts off saying, be this way, be this way, be this way, but it's not till the end of the passage that he actually tells you how he wants you to be. And so first we've got to understand what does he want us to be like, and then we'll come back next week and talk about these commands to be a certain way. There's two purposes in this passage. You'll see this on your outline. Two purposes in verse 1 to 11. The first is emulation, The second is adoration. And this is really getting to the the heart of why we would look at a passage backwards. Paul has two motivations in writing these verses. One is he wants you to emulate, or you could say imitate, Jesus. Secondly, he wants you to worship Jesus. So this is important. Not only are we going to flip the passage because logically that's sort of how the argument makes sense and that's how we're going to make sense of it, covering it over two weeks, but this also gets to the heart of Christianity and why we would flip this one passage and study it basically backwards. Christianity is not, first and foremost, a religion that says you need to be a certain way or do a certain thing or live a certain way. Christianity, first and foremost, is a a religion, if you want to call it that, that calls you to worship Jesus above all else. You need to see Jesus as the greatest treasure that you could ever obtain. First, you have to do that. You have to love him with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. It's not about you doing something to earn your way with him. It's not about you pulling yourselves up by your spiritual bootstraps. It's about loving him, adoring him, worshiping him first. And when you do that, the Bible says that he gives you his spirit to live within you and to change you into the kind of person that emulates him or that imitates him or that begins to look like him. And so not only are we going to flip this passage because logically I think it makes a little better sense if you're going to split it over two weeks, but we're doing that because that gets to the heart of our faith to say first you come to Jesus in worship. You acknowledge him for who he is as the king of all kings. And secondly, a distant second, then you try to be like him. And the spirit of God works in you so that you become more and more like him. Now, Most Bible scholars will suggest, we're looking at the second half this morning, verse 5 to 11. Most Bible scholars suggest that verse 5 to 11 is an early Christian hymn that Paul actually sort of borrowed. Don't don't think of this as like plagiarism. I know plagiarism is an issue if you're in school. Don't think of it as plagiarism. It's just sort of borrowing it and putting the lyrics to a song almost 
in the middle of this passage. And they say that for a couple of reasons. The main reason is that when you read verse 5 to 11 in the Greek, there's a bunch of words in there that Paul doesn't use anywhere else in all his letters. He doesn't use them in Romans or Corinthians or Galatians or Ephesians, anywhere else. He doesn't use these words. And so some scholars kind of speculate and they say, these don't seem to be words that he used anywhere else. Maybe he sort of borrowed these words, their lyrics to a hymn that maybe was sung in worship in, in the early churches, and he puts this in at this point. We really don't know if he borrowed this, if it's originally a hymn that he sort of put in the middle of this letter. What we do know is that Paul put these verses 5 to 11 in the middle of Philippians because he wanted these people to worship Jesus for who he was and for what he had accomplished on our behalf. Now, I got to admit to you, as a preacher, there's a lot of passages that you can preach that you just sort of, it's, it's not a big deal. I hate to say it's not a big deal to preach out of the Word of God. It's always a big deal, but you come to the passage and you say, okay, let's talk about it. This is one of the passages that when you come to it, you sort of stop and you say, what, what do you say about this? What do I have to add to it? It's sort of like I've said this before uh, when we went through the Gospel of Luke and you see Jesus praying in the garden. And it's such a heavy passage and such a weighty passage, you sort of just pause when you come to it and you just sort of feel a deep inadequacy to say anything meaningful about a passage like that. And honestly, when you come to Philippians 2, 5 to 11, I feel the same way. It's such an amazing passage. In fact, I'll share a quote with you from a guy named Dennis Johnson. He says, these seven verses may have generated more scholarly comment and theological reflection than the other 97 verses of Philippians put together, and for good reason. And so just to give you one example, one of the commentaries I read every week, he sort of breaks it down passage by passage, and he sort of writes what you would call a chapter on each passage in Philippians. And then you come to Philippians 2, 5 to 11, and he writes like 10 chapters. And so you're tracking along pretty good if you're studying, right? A chapter, a sermon, a chapter, a sermon, a chapter, a sermon. And then you say, okay, now I've got to take 10 chapters and cram them into one sermon, which I'm not going to try to do. But you feel the weight of that when books and commentaries have been written and songs have been inspired and so much stuff has been written about this passage and said about this passage, it's a difficult thing to cram it into a 30, 40-minute sermon. We're going to try, and here's the big idea of the passage before we read it. You ready? The preexistent Christ who humbled himself for our salvation has now been enthroned as the King, capital K, King of the universe. It's a big idea, verse 5 to 11. There's enough theology in that statement. There's enough theology in verse 5 to 11 to spend months and months and months talking about what Paul's written. We're going to do it in two weeks. And so each week, this week and next week, we're going to read the whole passage so that we understand his argument. Look at Philippians 2. We'll read verse 1 down to verse 11. Scripture says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we want to come before your word this morning humbly. We want to sit under the authority of your word. We ask that you would help us to see truth about Jesus, truth that maybe we know, truth that maybe we need to learn, truth that we need to be reminded of. Father, help us to see how it applies to our life, most clearly in the in the issue of our salvation and our relationship with you. Father, we pray for those in the room who do not have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we walk through this passage that they would see the truth about who Jesus is, that they would understand the truth about what he's done for sinful people, and that they would receive it gladly and joyfully. Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can go all over the world. People love stories of an unsuspecting hero. One commentator I read this week said, we love stories of an incognito king. We like somebody who's going to rule to sort of come out of nowhere. And I pulled a couple of examples just uh, from the realm of geekdom for those of you who are sort of geeky. One would be J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And Aragorn, when you first meet him in the books, in the movies, he's not Aragorn. His name is Strider. And he's just sort of this lonely ranger guy. You don't know who he is, where he's from, who he's connected to. He just sort of pops up. He doesn't have any connection to anybody. And you keep reading the story, and before long you realize this guy's not just a sort of a lone ranger character. He's the central character. He's the king that everyone has been waiting for. Uh, to appease my staff, I... We'll give you another example of that, which would be Star Wars, or as Corey likes to say it, Star Wars, Star Wars. And I had to, I had to send this to Corey because I'm not a big Star Wars guy, so I've, I've vetted this with the authority, so I get this right this week, okay? When you first meet Luke, he's just an orphan kid, he's very unsuspecting, you don't think that he's going to be anything great, and you follow the story for a while, and you realize, well, this guy is something, He's the, the twin brother to the princess, he's the son of the bad guy, and he's this great Jedi, and he's sort of this hero that comes around and saves the day at the end. I could give you 
dozens of examples of this. I was thinking about them just this morning as I was getting ready and as I was studying. I don't have any more pictures for you, but I thought Cinderella is a great example of that. We sort of look for this heroine to come out of nowhere, and she's just this maid, and nobody cares about her, and she doesn't have anything going for her. And then all of a sudden, you turn around, and she's the queen. She's the princess. I like college basketball, and so March is coming up, and so we play this Cinderella theme when college basketball rolls around. And we like that. It's the same basic story. We say, we like somebody to come and to win out of nowhere, somebody that no one expected, somebody that that nobody gave them a chance to win, and we want them. We pull for them, and you watch these games and these tournament games, and the, the underdog always has the crowd on their side. It's because we just, we pull for the underdog. We pull for the guy or the gal that comes out of nowhere to be the hero. That's a biblical theme as well. It's not just sort of something we've invented here in the West. It's a biblical theme. You can think about King David. When Samuel went to Jesse's family to find the second king of Israel, he starts with the oldest and he moves to the next oldest and he moves to the next oldest. And who does he end up with? He ends up with the little brother out with the sheep that nobody would have suspected. And he says, you're the one. You're the one that God has chosen, the youngest, the most unsuspecting, to rise to the throne of Israel. Paul's taking that literary theme in Philippians 2, and he's putting it up on the highest shelf that he can put it on. And just to totally spoil it for you, what he's saying is, the God who made everything left his throne and became one of us. Not only did he humble himself in becoming one of us, but he humbled himself in dying. And not only did he humble himself in dying, he humbled himself in dying in the most shameful way imaginable. Only to be highly, super, extremely exalted back to where he belongs on the throne of heaven. And it's this idea that a king has come from very humble beginnings to rule over everything. And so we're going to look at these, these few verses this morning. I'm going to ask this question. How does Philippians 2, 5 to 11 move us to adoration? How does it move us to worship? What do we see about Jesus in this passage that when we finish this morning, we should respond and say, this man, this God, this God-man is worthy of my worship. He's worthy of me waking up on a Sunday morning and coming to sit in this room that's always either too hot or too cold so that I can worship and sing songs to him. It's worth it. It's totally worth it. That I can live my life throughout the week, regardless of what's going on, in a way that honors him and glorifies him and points people to him and shows people how valuable it is. He is. How does Philippians 2 move us to adoration? Number one, this is heady stuff. We see the preexistent glory of the king. The preexistent glory of the king. He says in verse 6 that Christ Jesus was in the form of God. He was in the form of God. And theologians sort of, some of them try to get cute with this and play with it, but what he's saying to you is, he was God. In the beginning, he's taking you all the way back, and he's saying before anything was, Jesus Christ was, and he was God. This is the kind of stuff you can try to stay up late at night when you're 10 years old and lay in your bed and try to get your arms all the way around it and then you just wake up the next day and you say, I don't get it. 
I don't get it. Doesn't matter if you're 10, 20, 50, 60, 80, you're not gonna get it. He says, in the beginning, before there was anything, Jesus Christ was in the form of God. This is John chapter one. We're talking about the persons of the Trinity existing in the beginning. And John says, in the beginning was the word. We keep reading in John one, we know that that's Jesus. So in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and he was God. And you sort of want to say to John, well, which one was it? Was he God or was he with him? And John says, yes, he was him and he was with him. Because in the beginning, it was Father, Son, and Spirit together, no beginning, never created. And Paul's picking up on that in Philippians 2, verse 6, and he says, in the beginning, you remember, Jesus Christ was in the form of God. Jesus prays about this later. It's not just John making it up. Look what Jesus prayed. The last night he was on the earth. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. If you have ever read the Old Testament, you know one thing. God does not share his glory with anyone. He absolutely refuses. He says to Moses, I will not share glory with this foolish Pharaoh. I will get glory over him. It will be mine. He says through Isaiah, I will not share my glory with idols, with statues. That will not happen. He says to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, one day my glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. I'm not going to share it with anybody else. It will all be mine. And Jesus has the audacity to say this, that before the world existed, he shared glory with the Father. And he wants it back. Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world began. When you try to think about this, Philippians 2, he was in the form of God. It's going to make your brain hurt. It's going to if you really try to wrestle with it. But it also ought to move your heart to worship. The one that you can't understand. The one that you can't fully wrap your arms around. And why would you be able to wrap your arms around him if from the very beginning of all time in eternity past, he shared glory with the Father? I showed up in 1982. I don't know when you showed up. I hadn't been around that long. I'm going to have an end. You're going to have an end. We are small like a breath, like dust on the scales. You won't be able to get it comprehend it fully but it ought to move you to worship when you read this and he says he was in the form of God secondly we see the incarnation of the king the taking on of flesh and this is interesting verse 6 and 7 he was in the form of God but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped he didn't think he He didn't count equality with God something to be clung to or held on to at all costs. And you read that and you say, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? He didn't, he didn't, he was equal with God. John said he was God. He was with God. There's an equality. They shared a glory, but he didn't consider that something to be grasped for or held on to. How am I supposed to make sense of that? I think there's two ways you can make sense of it. Sort of by looking at a negative example. First negative example you can look at is Satan. 
Jot down maybe in the margin on, on your notes, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. You read about this creature who was not God, who had the audacity to try to be God. Literally, he grasped for it. He tried to cling to it. And then you see that same creature, after he experiences God's judgment, he takes this form of a serpent and he enters the garden. And what does he say to Adam and Eve? If you eat of that fruit, you'll be like who? You'll be like God. That's what he thought in the beginning. That's what he grasped for in the beginning. He knew that wasn't going to happen. It didn't happen for him. It wasn't going to happen for them. And it was a lie. But he tempts them with this same idea. You can be like God. And Adam and Eve fall for it hook, line, and sinker, just like Satan did. And they grasp for something that was not theirs. They try to cling to something that was not theirs to have. And here's the flip side of it that Paul's painting this picture for you. You have Satan grasping for it. It's not his. You have Adam grasping for it. It's not his. You have Jesus who has it. And he doesn't cling to it. And he doesn't grasp it. He says he takes the form of a servant. Look what we read in John 1.14, just to look at some scriptures. It says, the word became flesh, the one, the word, capital W, the one who in the beginning was God and was with God, that same word, he took on flesh. That's literally what it means to be incarnated. The incarnation is God taking on flesh. Look what we read in this next verse, Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what Paul's talking about when he says he became a servant. This is what Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 52 and 3 where he said God will send his servant who will be crushed for the iniquities of his people. Mark says he's the one, he's the servant. He didn't come so that you could serve him, he came to serve you, to give his life as a ransom for your life. Paul puts it a different way. I like it in 2 Corinthians 8 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. He didn't grasp or cling to what was rightfully his, but he humbled himself and he became a servant. This is the incarnation. This is what C.S. Lewis says about it. I like this quote, short and to the point. If it happened, it was the central event in the history of the earth. If it really happened the way Paul says it happened, the way Matthew says it happened, the way Luke says it happened, if it really happened that God took on flesh, like John said in John 1.14, it's the most important thing that's ever happened. Everything else changes if that's true. Lewis believed that it was true. Paul believed that it was true. It's not just fairy tales he's making up. This really happened. The one who was in the form of God took the form of man. Number three, you see the crucifixion of the king. That's verse eight. Found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I don't know how many times I've, I've missed it and never seen it, but I, I saw it this week. 
Verse 8 says that he humbled himself. He humbled himself. You realize that if he didn't humble himself, no one could have ever humbled him. Ever. You read these accounts of Jesus right before the crucifixion, and he's stand bef- standing before these pathetic human kings. He's standing before Annas and Caiaphas. He's standing before Herod. He's standing before Pilate. And they're standing there, and they're so boastful, and they're so proud, and they're so pompous, and they're so arrogant. It just makes you want to puke. And you see Jesus humbling himself, not saying a word. From an external perspective, from a historical perspective, somebody just standing in the room watching it, you would say, these men are humbling this Jew. They're beating this Jew to death. They're hanging this Jew on a cross. Paul's perspective on it is a little bit different, and he says, no, they didn't humble him. He humbled himself. This is sort of what Jesus says in John 10, right? When he says, I'm the good shepherd, and I laid down my, my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord because I can take it back up again. He humbles himself. It's interesting that in many parts of the world, Christians are known as people of the cross. People of the cross. It's interesting because in Roman society, if you were cultured, you were part of what you might term polite Roman society, The very word cross was a a banned word. It's like a four-letter word. It's like what you don't say on on public radio or what you don't say on the news. You don't say those words. You don't say them in mixed company. It's like a dirty, bad, foul word. And yet Paul, an Orthodox Jewish rabbi who spent his entire life pushing back against anything that smacks of blasphemy, not only says that Jesus was in the form of God. A man was originally in the form of God, but he says that that man humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul explains it this way in Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you can read that verse... I'm not saying you've got to get misty-eyed. I'm not saying you have to get a lump in your throat. I'm not saying you have to feel something in your gut. I'm just saying, if you can read that verse and think about that verse and read what Paul's saying here, where he says he humbled himself, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You can read that and not feel like you ought to respond in worship. You don't know Jesus. You might know about him. You may have heard about him. You maybe can answer questions about him, but you don't know him. What Paul's talking about ought to move you to worship. It ought to move you to adoration. Number four, we see the exaltation of the king. The exaltation of the king. It's verse nine and 10. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Highly exalted is one word in Greek And it's a word that Paul made up. It's not a real word. You don't find it anywhere else in any ancient Greek manuscripts of the Bible or of any other document. He just made up a word right here because there was no word that was sufficient to say what he wanted to say. And what he's really saying is not just did he exalt him, exalt covers it, but he super exalted him. He highly exalted him. It's sort of like when you say a woman is really pregnant, you know, 
Well, you either are or you're not. There's no really involved in it. You just add that on for effect. And Paul's adding a word on for effect here. He's exalted, don't get me wrong, but he's super exalted, highly exalted. You say, how exalted is he? Paul says, he's so exalted, he has been given the name above every name. And he goes on in this passage and he tells you what the name is, that everyone would confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Lord. It's a Greek word used to translate God's name in the Old Testament. And I could give you dozens of verses. I'm just going to give you one from the book of Isaiah. Look at this. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That is my name and my glory I give to no other. I mean, dozens. I could, we could spend all day looking at verses just like this. That's my name. I'm the Lord. And I give my glory to no one else. That's my name. And Paul says, now it's Jesus' name. He has that name. That's how high the Father has exalted him so that everyone will one day confess that that's him. The one who was in the beginning, the one who humbled himself, the one who died our death on the cross, the one who's now been raised from the dead and exalted to the highest position in heaven. He's super exalted so that he has the name above every other name. It's an amazing thought what Paul says here. Don't miss it. He says, a day is coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. All of them. Every knee and every tongue. And if you try to limit that somehow, he he backs you out of that limiting and he says, no, 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 I'm talking about all the ones in heaven and all the ones on earth and all the ones under the earth. Anywhere you can go, all the knees and all the tongues are going to bow and confess. Some of them are going to do it out of joy and worship. And some of them, the Bible says, are going to do it out of anguish and despair. I just want you to understand that Paul knew what he was talking about. Paul understood that regardless of whether or not you're a quote-unquote Christian or you're saved, that when you come face-to-face with the exalted Jesus, your knee is going to bow and you are going to confess. Look what we read in Acts 9. This is Paul going to murder Christians. He's not a believer. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He's on his knees, confessing that the person he's encountering is the Lord. And Paul says, someday everyone's going to do it. Everyone. I did it when I wasn't even a believer. I found myself in the presence of the highly exalted Jesus Christ and all I could do was fall to the ground and confess him as Lord. And someday you're going to do that. And like I said earlier, some of you are going to do that out of joy and delight and worship and excitement and happiness and all of it. It's going to be great. And others are going to do it out of anguish, begrudgingly, grinding your teeth as you do it, but you're going to do it. Every knee on the ground, every tongue confessing that he's Lord. So we see the exaltation of the king last. Very quickly, we see the eternal glory of the king. We see him right back where he started. 
confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord all to the glory of God the Father. You can look at 1 Corinthians 15. You can look at Revelation 19. Paul and John describe this. Eternity is moving towards a time when everyone acknowledges Jesus for who he is. This week I read a story. It's a story by a guy who was a missionary to Africa, spent his life in Africa ministering to the people there. And the story he told goes like this. He said, I encountered a particular village, a particular group of people. It was not a big group of people, small people group. And he says, I went to this particular village and I got to know the people and I started visiting with them and they began to tell me some of their stories, some of their history. And they told him this story. They said, in our village, uh, the chief is always the strongest guy. So sort of like a perpetual feats of strength. Who's the strongest guy in the village? And whoever the strongest, baddest, toughest, meanest dude is, he gets to be the chief. And the chief gets to wear special robe. Chief gets to wear special headdress. He's the guy in charge. He makes the decisions, and that's how we, we do it, whoever is physically the strongest. And told this story that while he was ministering to these people, trying to share with these people, uh, there was a man who went to fetch water. He fell down this well. They had dug this well. He fell down this well, broke his leg. He's down at the bottom of the well. He cannot make it back up to the top. It's straight walls up, sort of boards tacked to the ground to sort of climb out, but his leg is broken and he can't make it. So they do what anyone would do in that situation. They say, who's the biggest, toughest, strongest guy in the village? Well, it's the chief. Go get him. So they go get the chief, and this missionary says he's there watching all this. The chief comes, strongest guy in the village, man at the bottom of the well, stuck, can't get himself out. And he says the chief takes his headdress and he takes it off. And he takes his robe, only the chief gets to wear it, and he takes it off. And he climbs down into the bottom of the well. He throws this old boy up on his shoulder, only guy strong enough to do this. Climbs right out the top of the well and he saves him. And the missionary says, I'm watching this. And he says, all I can think about is Philippians 2. He said, you talk about an opportunity to share the gospel with a group of people. That's it. Your chief laid aside his glory. He didn't stop being the chief, by the way, when he took that headdress off, right? He could still whoop you. He's still the chief. Took that robe off and he put it down. Still the chief, we're all clear on that. And he humbles himself to crawl down into a dirty, nasty well to pull out a man who is helpless down at the bottom. And he carries him to safety. When he carries him to safety, he puts his robe back on, he puts the headdress back on, and everyone knows he's the chief. And the missionary says to these people, I got great news for you. That's happened before. On any, a, a greater scale and even more unimaginable scale than you can ever fathom. The one who made you in the beginning humbled himself to come rescue you because you're down at the bottom of the well, stuck in your own sin and filth, unable to get yourself out. So he laid aside, he didn't cling to it, but he laid aside his prerogatives, his rights as the chief. And he crawled down and he carried you out. But he didn't just have to carry you out. He had to die for you. And he died for you in the most humbling way possible. He died for you on a cross. He took the punishment that should have fallen on you on himself. And he ransomed you. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom 
for his people. He did that. Then he was raised from the dead and he was super highly exalted back to the position where he belonged on the throne of the universe. And I'm just telling you this, that's a crazy story. Like, I, I can't imagine hearing that for the first time. You know nothing about Jesus. You just see your chief crawl into a well and climb out and somebody says, I got one to top that. Here it is. But that missionary believed it. And many of the people in that village believed it. And Paul certainly believed it. And the question is this morning, when you read about this stuff that we've talked about, do you believe it? Look what one Bible scholar says, Kent Hughes. These thoughts are not the wild notions of Paul's rabbinic imagination, nor are they the playground of theologians. This is what Christ Jesus truly did for you and me. His self-humiliation really did happen. Only it was far more wrenching than we can imagine. Likewise, his super-exaltation is beyond wonder. Yet all of this is true, and it demands belief. It's true. I mean, I give you the Star Wars and the Lord of the Rings and the Cinderella stuff, and it's all a bunch of fairy tales. It's all a bunch of fantasy. It's all a bunch of stuff that we've just made up in our minds. And we come to this story, and it's even crazier, and it's true. And what we're about to do as a church family is celebrate the Lord's Supper. I'm just telling you, the Lord's Supper is a great picture of what we believe about Philippians 2. Lord's Supper is a celebration where we remember the King, we worship the King, and we reaffirm our faith in the King. Too often we turn it into a time where we come and we try to feel sorry for the King. Like it must have been so painful, it must have been so bad, it must have been so miserable. That's not what the Lord's Supper is about. Don't make it about that. It's about remembering who the King is. It's about worshiping the king for what he's done for us. It's about reaffirming our faith. We believe that this story is true. So this morning, my invitation is simple. If you are a follower of the king, and if this story is your story, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. If you sit here this morning and you think, man, it's too good to be true. Maybe you sit here this morning and you say, I've heard it, but it doesn't move me to worship. It doesn't do a thing to my heart. We'd ask you not to participate in the Lord's Supper, but to spend this time reflecting on what it would mean for you to accept this story as true. To pray that God would confirm in your heart and in your mind the truthfulness of this. And we'd love to visit with you after the service this morning. So I'm going to ask you to bow. Some of our men are going to go to the back as they get ready to serve the Lord's Supper to us, band is going to come up. We're going to pray this morning as we, as we get ready to celebrate what Christ has done for us. Father, we stop this morning and our hearts are filled with wonder and amazement. We just remind ourselves of the central story of our faith. And we just stop to remind ourselves that it's true, that it really happened. Father, we're amazed at your plan of redemption. 
We're amazed at what Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Father, and we stop this morning at the end of of listening to your word just to celebrate who you are as the king, to worship you for what you've done for us through Christ, and to look forward to the day when the king returns for his people. And we eat this meal with him and we drink this drink with him and we celebrate with him in his kingdom in all its glory and all its fullness. Father, you are a great God and we celebrate a great salvation this morning. And as we take of the bread and as we take of the cup, we do not come as people who think that we're worthy to receive this, but we acknowledge our sin We acknowledge our rebellion and we throw ourselves on your grace and your mercy, trusting and believing that what Jesus has done for us is enough. Father, be honored as we take this Lord's Supper this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.